Hey, I want to take just a second to thank you for your patient endurance. As you might have perceived, last week when I said that our HVAC was going to be fixed this week, that did not come to be. Apparently, when construction is involved in things, it can slow down for some reason somehow. Never heard of that before. But uh, uh, so yeah, we were we had a delay in that in that process. But thankfully, it's supposed to be installed this week, and hopefully, you can gather next week um, in the air conditioning. I think it is a good opportunity though to consider and 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 let our our minor discomfort be something that points our hearts and minds to our brothers and sisters around the world who are going through grievous suffering. We could be mindful and prayerful of those who are hiding in basements this morning, those who are meeting in huts in the mud or wherever they might be able to meet to do what we get to do so comfortably on a regular basis. And so I thought, let's just take this slight discomfort and let it turn our hearts to pray for those brothers and sisters this morning. Would you join me? Lord, I just thank you for the many blessings you've given us. And God, I thank you that you've provided a means for us to have air conditioning. We take that for granted. And Lord, I just pray that this morning, as we might be a little uncomfortable with the temperatures we might experience, God, I just think about our brothers and sisters around the world who are in fear of death our brothers and sisters around the world who are gathering in much more humble means than this, our brothers and sisters around the world who are meeting in basements or hiding in their homes to try and gather and worship without getting arrested. Lord, we just pray for them. We ask that you would protect them. We ask that you would give them wisdom, lead them by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would continue to flourish the gospel work in those persecuted regions of the world. And let us be grateful for the many, many blessings you have given us. Today, as we get into your word, Lord, I ask that you'd open our eyes to see the truth, open our hearts to receive it, and that you would transform us for the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. As we're in this series, finishing up last week, we concluded the book of James, and now we're going to be in this series It's a shorter series on parables, and it's a series we might pick up off and on uh, over time as Jesus taught so many parables, over 30 parables in the Gospels. Um, We might take opportunity to just slide one in here and there. Have you, as you're turning to Luke chapter 15, have you ever left a movie and felt like not only was it entertaining, but there was a lesson or a takeaway from that movie where you go out having watched the story, but you're thinking about something, implications on your life of ways that the movie made you feel, things that the movie made you consider. And of course, that's true for us, whether it's The Matrix or Groundhog Day or the greatest movie series of all time, Lord of the Rings. These stories are often trying to teach us something. There's not just entertainment value there. These stories are trying to give us lessons In fact, it's very rare today that you can watch a movie without an underlying message that is trying to be taught to you from directors and producers and all those involved. And when I consider the sheer number of Disney movies where the plot is there is a princess who wants one thing that her father won't let her have and she rebels against the father 
and ends up accidentally kind of saving the world through that rebellion. And in hindsight, the father sees that the daughter was wrong and all that was needed was that she chased and followed her heart and fulfilled her dreams and everything was made right in the world and the father realized that he was wrong. It's kind of like the main plot of like 20 Disney princess movies. And although that those plots have massive problems to them, implications to them. This is actually why a lot of times when I watch a movie with my wife and or my daughters, that when it's over, I'll stop sometimes and try and say, so what do you think we learned from that? What's the story they wanted us to take away from that movie? What's the lesson they're trying to teach us? And even I can just ramp up the cheesy dad factor where I have taken songs from these Disney movies where I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's it's and what's it's galore. You want thingamabobs? I've got 20 or plenty, yeah. But who cares? No big deal. Do you know the next line? I want more. And although it's a catchy song and my daughters might love that song, I'm recognizing that song's teaching my daughters discontentment. And so I'm in the van one day riding with my daughters going, hey, what if we change that song? Because what's the message of that song? And we talked through it for a few moments and they said, well, maybe actually I said, I think the song's trying to teach us that what we have is not enough and we should want more. Is that a good idea? And my daughter's kind of picking up on what I'm doing. They're going, no, daddy, we should be thankful for what we have because I've told them that 50 times. And so we start singing, how could we rewrite this song and go, um, you know, I've got gadgets and gizmos and plenty. Who's it and what's it's glory? you got thing of Bob's, I got 20. Who cares? No big deal. I've got more than I need. <laughs> and then we start changing the chorus. Even though there are many movies that have plots and messages and themes and, and agendas that I don't want to learn or gleam or take with, there are also many movies or stories that do have valuable lessons for us to learn. And I think a parable in Jesus' day is kind of like that, wherein Jesus recognizes there's a message that I want to convey here, and the people are going to catch it and understand it and receive it better if there's a story attached. And yet at times also, there's times where Jesus is telling a story through parable, and his disciples are like, Jesus, why are you teaching through parables? Don't you want to just speak plainly and tell people exactly what you're trying to say? And Jesus says to them, well, to you, it's been given to understand and know the secrets of the kingdom, and to others it hasn't. And so that's why I teach in parables. He who has ears, let him hear with the Spirit is saying. And so similarly, when I'm watching movies, I'm trying to discern what that movie's trying to say to me. And Jesus taught abundantly through parables, through these stories, through these illustrations that would teach a deeper meaning than what was on the surface of that story. And of course, Jesus' parables, unlike Disney, always had true and pure lessons for us. We're going to find today in John chapter 15, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 15, a really beautiful picture. Luke chapter 15 and verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear from him, Jesus, they're hearing from. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, to you and I today, you might be like, big deal. Okay, what, why are they grumbling about this? 
Tax collectors were notorious in that day for lying and for manipulating and for stealing money through extortion of taxes. These were Jews who were hired by Rome to collect taxes for Rome from the Jews. Not only that, though, that wasn't something that in and of itself put them in bad standing with fellow Jews. It was that they would then tip the scales or weigh the scales to where they could require more taxes and pocket some of them for themselves. And so they would manipulate and through their job, they would steal with authority from Rome, they would steal from their brothers and sisters. And so if you're a first century Jew living in Palestine, you see tax collectors as the scum of the earth. You despise them. And so when Jesus is receiving and eating with sinners and tax collectors, I don't think I have to define sinner to you. It's pretty self-explanatory. You see that and, and you're annoyed and irritated by it. You're, you'd scoff at it. But further than that, there's also implications of it's one thing to be around people in those days, but when you received them, these, the, the Greek terms under receive and eats with, are terms that implied a deep level of fellowship. One that if you were a Jew and you received in fellowship sinners and tax collectors, you would have then been considered unclean. You would have been considered unclean under um, the Levitical law and even under rabbinic teaching, rabbinic Judaism of the day. And so there are implications of eating with these sinners and welcoming them, yet the same way that Jesus was not made unclean when he was around lepers, rather he cleansed the lepers of their disease, leprosy being a disease that was symbolic of sin, Jesus also is not made unclean by being in the presence of sinners. Similarly, like the leper, he's bringing himself to them to cleanse them of their disease of sin. The Pharisees don't see this, they don't understand this, they don't know this, and they don't like this because they want a good teacher to come and cheer them on and put them on a pedestal. They want someone to come in and go, look how awesome these Pharisees are. Man, they know the law, they love it, they obey it, they're faithful in their practice and in their orthodoxy, and so let's all be more like them. And instead, Jesus comes and fellowships with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus answered similar accusations by saying, I did not come for the well, but for the sick. In Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the, the lost. The lost. When Jesus is doing what he came to do, to seek and save the lost, when he came to love and forgive and reconcile the sinner back to God, the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling against him for doing that. And because of that grumbling, because of their complaints and their moaning against Jesus, Jesus then launches into three parables. And we see this in the phrase in verse 3 where it says, so he told them. Notice, Jesus is with the sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees are grumbling, and it says, because they're grumbling, so he told them. And I would just invite you in your Bible study to learn to pay attention to transitional phrases like that. These, these phrases where it says, 
so he told them, or where in your Bible you might see, in order that, or so that, or because. These types of phrases are the author trying to give us meaning and understanding of what they read or what they wrote. Luke 15, we'll continue on in verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So what causes rejoicing in heaven? What causes that rejoicing? When one sinner repents. One person, one sinner, when one person out of the mass, out of the 99, repents and comes back to the Lord. And heaven rejoices, celebrates, throws a party. See, repentance of sin has always been a part of the message. The gospel calls sinners into repentance. See how Jesus didn't say, the shepherd found the sheep and he stayed with him in the wilderness of sin. The shepherd told the sheep, Jesus didn't say that the shepherd told the sheep, hey sheep, I'm glad that you followed your heart out here and that you found your truth in the wilderness. That's not what happened. Jesus says the shepherd goes out into the wilderness, leaving the 99 to find that sheep, and when he finds that sheep, he places it on his shoulders and rejoices and celebrates and takes that sheep back home amongst his beloved, amongst his friends, families, and peers, and amongst them celebrates the lost sheep that was found, but he didn't say, hey guys, let's go out into the wilderness with the sheep that I found. Repentance is part of the message. It always has been. It always will be. And in a day and an age wherein a society is telling you, hey, you be true to you and you follow your heart and you do whatever you want. Did you know that's actually, that's actually the core tenet of Satanism? Do what thou wilt. Do what you want. Is the heart of contrary concepts to God's ways, God's will, and God's word. And so repentance of sin has always been a part of the message. The rejoicing in heaven isn't or is over sinners repenting and the lost being found. Now, if you're a businessman, this doesn't make fiscal sense. Why would you leave 99 to go out into the wilderness to gain one back? That's risky. Why would you do that? It doesn't necessarily make business sense that what you could lose, maybe while you're away, is another sheep going to wander off? While you're pursuing the one, what might happen to the 99? It doesn't make business sense. Most, most businessmen would cut their losses and try to prevent more loss try and figure out what happened with the one and how can we make sure that doesn't happen again. But for Jesus, it wasn't about the bottom line or, or staying in the black versus the red. It was about pursuing the one lost person whom he loved. It was those sinners and those tax collectors that Jesus is saying, I love them. 
I want them. And if you're wrestling today with the thought of if you are more valuable or if you're valuable to God, if God desires you and wants you, and if you're comparable to all the other that look polished and look just fine and look like they've got their act together, and maybe I'm the one who's out in the wilderness and don't have my act all together, and he's coming, having to come out and chase after me, the chase in of itself shows your value and worth to the pursuer, to the shepherd who says, I want you back. Not only does this parable tell us that you're not just another face in the crowd, but an individual person with value to God. And not the kind of value that just makes him a little sad that you left, but the kind of value that makes him leave the 99 to chase you down, to pick you up, to carry you back home, and to celebrate over finding you. What does that do to your heart when you know that you're the sheep who wandered away and that shepherd comes out to find you, picks you up, carries you back home, and celebrates over you? To you and me, to all of us who are sinners, who all of us have strayed away, all of us have wandered. This is what Romans 3 tells us. That all are sheep who have gone astray. Isaiah 53, 5, or 5, uh, 53 prophesying the same thing, that we are like sheep who have gone astray. This lamb who was slaughtered for us to come and bring us back into the fold doesn't grumble about it the whole way back. He doesn't go, I can't believe I had to go out and find this dumb sheep and drag him all the way back. If he would have just stayed with the flock, wouldn't have had to do this, wouldn't have had to come out here into the desert. No, he's just going, I found my sheep. The heart of the Father for you is rejoicing over finding you. The love of God chases you down, carries you home, and celebrates over you. Let's continue in verse 8. He rolls into another parable, another illustration. He says, or... What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We might read this story and think, man, like there are quarters that have been lost in the cracks and crevices of my couch for years, <laughs> and I'm not turning the house upside down trying to find those coins. And again, you might hear this story and think, well, maybe God values me as much as I value a quarter, and if I see one in the parking lot, I mean, sure, I'll pick it up, but I'm not turning my house apart. I'm not turning things upside down, losing sleep over a little coin. And part of that disconnect is the value of a coin 2,000 years ago versus the value of a coin today. See, the value of the coin in this story is a coin called a drachma. It was similar to, um, to a denarius, and it was not a quarter. It was worth a day's wages. And although you might not lose sleep over a quarter, if you lost a day's wages, you might lose a little sleep. You might be pretty upset about that. And actually, you'd probably look for it and try to figure out what happened, where it went. And so this day's wages 
is a lot more than a quarter. And notice this, the woman had a lot more than one day's wages. She had 10 coins and only lost one of them. So she still had nine days wages. And you could think, well, she's still got enough. It was only one coin. Listen, there may be billions of people in the world. And actually, math and data and statistics and whatever analysis these people use would right now say that there's around 2 billion Christians in the world. And you could think, God's got enough coins. I mean, what's the one more? I mean, is it really worth turning the house upside down? Listen, it's never been about does God have enough It's always been about, does God have you? It's not about the coins that God already has, the sheep that he already has. The question is, does God have you? And these parables are twofold. One, Jesus is using these parables to indirectly rebuke the Pharisees, the religious, the self-righteous ones who are going, I can't believe he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And then also to the tax collectors and sinners like you and like me and the sinners like the Pharisees who don't realize they need a savior. To us to recognize that God values us enough to leave the flock to chase us down, to scour the house, to light a lamp and try and find out where that one sheep went, where that one coin is. And so if today, if you're wrestling at all with, man, could God really value just me? Could God really love me? Because I know the things that the other people don't know that I've done. Could God really desire and want and value me enough to leave all the others and pursue me? Jesus, through parable, is screaming, yes. God loves and wants you. God might have many, but he still wants you. And just like the coin where he finds you and you repent of sin and come back to him, he rejoices. He doesn't go, cool, one more. He rejoices, celebrates. He rejoices more over you than over nine others who feel like they don't need repentance. He continues the same lesson in one more parable in verse 11, the parable of the prodigal son, probably the most famous of all parables. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all and had, or all he had, and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Pause here for a moment and say, 
isn't this what we do? When we have left or wandered away from the Father, and where we have found the, the end of the means that have led to these circumstances, when we find the consequences of our sinful decisions, and like this prodigal son, we have a wake-up call where we come to our senses, we came to ourselves, and we realize we had it better with the Father than out away from the Father, we do what this son is modeling and recognizing, man, I have botched this. I have messed this up. I took what the Father gave me and I wasted it and here I am amongst unclean animals joined to a Gentile laborer working with his unclean animals to the extent where I'm wanting to eat the food of unclean animals because I'm that hungry. Man, I had it better with my father even my hired servants have enough food to spare, so I need to go back home and, and let me recite and figure out what I need to say to my father because when I get back to my father and he sees me approaching in the distance, he's going to be like, why I oughta? He's going to see me coming and he's going to cross his arms and he's going to go, well, well, well. And so the son starts preparing and reciting this speech where he's going to come home to his dad and say, Father, I'm no longer worthy. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But if you'll just make me like one of your hired servants, please. He's probably practicing this speech all the way home. Our natural tendency is, want, is to want to make it Right? By getting our act together and showing God we mean it and showing God that we're sorry. We want to work for God to get back some measure of his good graces. The problem with that is that God's good graces are God's good graces, not God's good earnings. And our default pride human nature is to go, Oh, I've botched this, I've messed this up, the Father's got to be mad at me, so let me come back and show him that I'm willing to work for it. And let's see what happens when this is the case. And I'll say this, God's not looking for you to make things right. Jesus did that. Jesus made things right. He's only looking for you to repent and come home. Let's look as we continue in verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I love this. While the father was a long way, or while the son was a long way off, this implies that the father is there eagerly waiting. The father sees the son in the distance. And as I alluded to, this father doesn't go, oh, here comes Johnny. Let's see what he has to say. What's he got to show for himself? The father sees the silhouette of his son in the distance and he runs out to meet him. Doesn't even walk. Doesn't wait to like servants get me a donkey or a horse. He runs out to his son to meet him and then he falls on his neck embracing him and kissing him. And he said, verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against, he starts this speech, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the son had recited this speech, 
of the work that he would do to earn some wages, some clothing, some food, a spot as a worker. And notice this, the father doesn't even acknowledge, doesn't even acknowledge the sin. He interrupts this speech by embracing him and kissing him and showing him that he had forgiven him. This is not to say that sin was okay, rather that the sin was forgiven. That the repentance of the son turning and coming home made way for the father to offer the forgiveness as that son comes home. He embraces him, rejoicing just like the owner of the sheep, just like the woman who owned the coin. The father rejoices over finding what he loved, whom he loved, that came back home. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, he interrupts the son. His son's going, make me like one of your, and he's just like, uh, hired servants, bring quickly the best, the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. The robe, the shoes, the ring are all indicative of the fact that the father was not welcoming his son back as a hired servant. He put the best robe on him to show him, you're my son. Further, that ring would have been a signet ring, a ring that had the family symbol on it. It would have been a ring that people could see and recognize he's a son of that man. And so when the son's coming home going, I've botched this, I want to work to become a hired servant again, the father's going, nope, you're my son and you're back. You recognized what you did wrong and you came home. Yeah, you might have wasted and squandered it all, but you're back. I get you back. I, will, I don't care about the third of my property that is lost. I care about you that were lost. And the devil lies to us. The enemy lies to us telling us, man, you have done too much. You have squandered too much of God's love and his provision and what he's given to you. You better not go back. And the father's just going, I don't care about, about what you have wasted and or lost. I just want you back home. Verse 25, as we continue on, speaking of the older son, let's recall the present audience. Those who are hearing these three parables are the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus now shifts in a more pointed way to confront these self-righteous Pharisees with the hardness of their heart by comparing them to the older brother. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has just killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. Sounds like the Pharisees and the scribes and their grumbling. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. 
trying to help the son see the true value in what he has, not the goat, not the calf, but the father. You are always with me. And all, this, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting. It was right. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Notice the, other, notice the older brother's heart in saying these many years, I served you. I never disobeyed you. Yet you never gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. Have you ever felt like that before with God? I have. I've been there. Where we say, God, I've been faithful to you. God, I've served you. God, I, I volunteer at church. I lead a community group. I fill in the blank, but you have never even done this for me. God, I see what you've done for this other person or this other person that doesn't even know you or love you and, and all that they have. And they're happy and they're healthy and they're prosperous. And look at what's going on in their life. And God, I've been faithful all this time and I've done this. And why are you not doing that for me? Why are you not giving me what they have? And, and why are you not fixing this problem for me? And why, when I've been here all along? And notice the celebration that the older son wants. He says, you never gave me a goat that I could even make merry with my friends. Who is left off in that party? The father. He didn't say, you never gave me a goat that we could, you and I, be together and fellowship together. He said, you never gave me a goat that I could make merry with my friends. Even in his omission right there, he doesn't have a heart to celebrate with his father. You can be close to God in your behaviors and far from God in your heart. I'm going to say that again. You can be close to God in your behaviors and be very far from God in your heart. The older, older brother's terminology, he says, that son of yours. He didn't say my brother, he said that son of yours. The hardness of his heart blinds him to the fact that he should love and care enough about his brother, not that son of yours, but his brother, that he might be among the rejoicing that he might be the, among those who are celebrating, that he might hear the news and go, that's amazing. That's wonderful that he came back. Yet his begrudging servitude has hardened his heart in self-righteousness to where he doesn't see him as a brother, just like the Pharisees can only see sinners and tax collectors. Jesus trying to help the self-righteous see who they are. Going, you think that you're after the Father when your looks, your actions, your demeanor look like you're close to Him, but your heart is nowhere close to Him. And it's seen in that you think you are entitled, that you think you deserve. And you get angry when the Father is forgiving and welcoming back those who look like horrible, ter terrible people. The Pharisees can only see sinners and tax collectors rather than seeing the brothers and sisters who have come home who are in need of a Savior just like them. The younger son is reckless in disobedience. He confesses his sin. And the older son, ungrateful in obedience, insists on his rights. The younger renounces all claims to sonship and invites servitude. 
The older complains of disappointed sonship and despises the servitude to which he thinks himself unfairly reduced. The younger receives mercy from his father. The elder accuses the father in resentful self-righteousness. The older son is like many people who have enjoyed a long relationship with God. His love for the father has grown cold. He has become calloused and complaining. He harbors bitterness about the life that passed him by. He has been faithful over the years and he imagines that the father owes him a reward. Having not received what he imagines, he thinks himself justified in his bitterness. Listen, guys. Self-righteousness is born of pride. It leads to entitlement and results in bitterness because let me tell you something. Self-righteousness will give you that heart that this son is displaying where you feel like God owes you things and God owes us nothing. The breath you breathe right now is not owed to you. God owes us nothing. And all that he has given you, like the breath you have in your lungs, like the heart that's beating in your chest, like the clothes on your back, like this building that we get to gather in, like your home, like your food, like your cars, like your possessions, anything and everything that God has given you has been the abundant grace of God because we don't earn or deserve zilch. Now for all the talk about these two sons, the actual main character of the story is the father. The father is the main character of the story here. This parable might actually be more appropriately titled, not the prodigal son or the lost son, but the loving father. The father is mentioned in the first of the story, saying a father had two sons. The last person mentioned in this story is the father in his answer to the older son. The prodigal is not the main character, and even though this story was a response to the Pharisees, the elder brother was not the main character either. And although he is often lost by the dramatic story of repentance of the younger brother, the father is the present character from start to finish, the one who actually has the ability to affect the outcomes of both of the brothers. Because he, even if the younger brother comes home, if the father doesn't love him and welcome him back, it's nothing. Even if the older brother's heart is hardened and in the wrong place, the, older, or the father could have rejected him and sent him away. We have no implications of that. The father is the only finished character in the parable. He's done all that he can and need be done to restore the family, to reconcile back unto himself. This parable is a story about the indomitable love of the father. Now, in all three parables, there's rejoicing over the one finding what was valuable to them that they lost. And I hope all of us can hear today that if that's you, if you feel that you are far away from the Father, from the Good Shepherd, that the Father is seeking you out, chasing you down, and loves you enough to run out and meet you while you are still a far ways off. 
And all it takes is the turning of the heart in repentance. That when the Father sees you in the distance, not that you've got your act together, not that you go, okay, I get it, I want to come back home, but I probably need to clean myself up and get my act together. That's like trying to wash yourself before you get in the shower. Come back to the Father. And if we are among the Pharisee, the self-righteous, those whose love has grown cold for the Father, those who have all the external looks, those who attend church faithfully, those who participate in community groups or give to charities or serve or all the many good things that you can do, your Bible reading and prayer, but your heart has grown cold and distant from the Father that although in proximity you might feel close to him in all these external measures, internally in your heart you can be just like the Pharisees who Jesus called white-washed tombs, who are ornate and beautiful on the outside, Yet on the inside have dead man's bones, Jesus said. That it's just as easy to be in the house of God, be amongst God's people, do all the right things. And listen, if you're like me and you grew up in church, there's one slight disadvantage for all the great advantages of growing up, being taught the fear and admonition of the Lord. When you grow up in church, you grow up learning what a good Christian boy and girl does. You learn a Christian does this and doesn't do that. And if you do that, uh uh-oh, and don't you dare do that, and you start learning, okay, this is how I'm supposed to behave, and you can be like the older brother who starts learning how to work the father's field and starts learning how to do all the things that the father requires of you as one of his family, and you can do all those things having never really recognized your inner depravity of your heart and become bound to perpetual sin or self-righteous entitled bitterment, bitterness. Both sons, both sons needed repentance. One came to repentance after hitting rock bottom. The other, we don't know if he came to repentance or not, but if he did, it would not have been because he hit rock bottom Rather, because his father confronted the hardness of his heart. Confronted his self-righteousness. Which one might, could be true of you today. Whichever might be true of you today. The father does love both sons. And the father does desire both. And is ready to celebrate and rejoice over you. I'll say One more time, God might have many, but he still wants you. Lord, I pray today by your Holy Spirit that your word would penetrate our hearts, that we would see the truth of the love that you have for us. God, I pray that if there is anyone listening who is like that prodigal who feels like they've gone too far and they've wasted all that you've done for them and feel like you could never love them again. God, I ask that you would help them see the love that you do have for them, that you would chase them down. And God, for those who might be present who have allowed their hearts to become cold and hard and and no longer delighting in the joy of their salvation, 
God, I ask that you would soften the hardened heart. Bring also repentance and tenderness to your spirit, tenderness to your word, a genuine and refreshed or renewed or even birthed love for you this day. Let us be a people who desire above all to love and know and be with the Father. In Jesus' name. Church, in a response to our Father's perfect love and is seeking after us, can we declare this together this morning? We're coming back, we're coming back to you, Jesus. We're coming back, we're coming back to you, Lord. We're laying down, we're laying down every empty idol. Cause we will always, we will always be yours. We're coming back, we're coming back to you, Jesus. We're coming back. We're coming back to you, Lord. We're laying down, we're laying down every empty idol. Cause we will always, we will always. Come on, declare this morning, church. We're coming back, we're coming back to you, Jesus. We're coming back. We're coming back to you, Lord. We're laying down, we're laying down every empty idol. Cause we will always, we will always be.